Hi there, my name is Matthias Genjar and in this episode of Syscast I am joined by James Camerata from Red Hat. James is the lead developer on the Ansible project. We discuss getting started with Ansible, using it as config management, as a deployment tool, uh, orchestrating different runs and some of the challenges involved in doing so. I very much enjoyed this uh, this talk with James because I had no former experience with Ansible and after our talk I feel I have a much better understanding of it. Um, on a side note, uh, if you like this show but you haven't signed up for my weekly Linux and open source newsletter, I uh, highly encourage you to do so, obviously. Uh, you can check it out at cronweekly.com and receive tips and tricks for Linux sysadmins and developers uh, straight into your mailbox every Sunday morning. Now, without further delay, here's the show. In this episode of Syscast, I am joined by James, James Camerata from Red Hat to talk about all things Ansible. Hi there, James. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Fine as well. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I uh, appreciate you taking the time off for this. Um, yeah, no problem. Cool, cool. Uh, we, uh, well, <laughs> I'm guessing uh, listeners here are sysadmins, so we know Ansible or we at least have heard of it. Um, they uh, they may not know you per se, so could you introduce yourself? Who are you? How did you just get into IT, into programming? Uh, who is James? Sure. So um, I'm James Camerata, like you said. Uh, I've been with uh, Ansible for uh, just over three years. Um, I think I was the sixth employee hired by the company after they started up to uh, create a company around Ansible. A um, little bit of my background, I uh, pretty much, uh, I went to college to be a, a programmer, so I, I started at, at uh, basically a company uh, turning Perl scripts into Python scripts for Zope, if anyone remembers Zope. Um, I sure don't. Popular, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a very popular Python kind of CRM framework. Um, uh, this was like 2003, so... Um, it kind of fell by the wayside a bit, but uh, that, that got me into programming. And um, it was a very small company, and uh, it, we started out with five people, kind of fell down to three. So I ended up being both sysadmin, programmer, networking, and help desk, as is pretty common at small companies when you're the uh, one of the few IT people there. Um, so, yeah, that's I pretty much started doing Python right out of college. And, uh, you know basically mainly hacked Python scripts for doing sysadmin stuff. Um, uh, about 2008, I was working at a company. I was doing, I was building servers all the time. And a friend of mine introduced me to the Cobbler project. If anybody, I'm sure some sysadmins out there are familiar with Cobbler. It was all about kickstarting servers. Uh, and I'd been into open source for a while. So I started contributing to it because it made my job easier. And uh, basically from that point on, I was uh, contributing to it a lot. Um, and basically, uh, Michael Dehan, the creator of that project left. And, uh, after a little while I started running that project. So I ran cobbler from about 2010 until I, uh, joined Ansible. Uh, Michael Dehan also started Ansible. So he knew me from the cobbler days. So he, when he was looking to hire somebody who knew Python and open source, he came to me and asked me if I wanted to work for Ansible. I had never touched it before that, so it was. Uh, I basically had a very quick uh, ramp up on Ansible at that point. So your uh, your cobbler track record got you a job at uh, a role at Ansible. Yeah, pretty That's much. Cool. You, uh, still an active project for you, cobbler, or full time Ansible? Uh, full time Ansible. The uh, we I was kind of co maintainer with uh, somebody else who had left the project, and right as I was getting into Cobbler, he kind of came back around. It's like, hey, how can I help? I said, here, take it. <laughs> so he's been uh, running the Cobbler project since. Um, so yeah, just uh, I, I've been doing Ansible is a full time job and a half. So uh, for quite a while, the uh, the core team. Uh, was very very small for Ansible doing the open source side of the project. We were a small company, you know. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Looking back, you have a big track record as a as a programmer as well as a sysadmin. How how do you feel yourself? Are you more programmer or more sysadmin? Uh, recently, I'd say more programmer because I'm I'm starting to forget some sysadmin things because it's been three years since I've really had to do anything, <laughs> you know, for a, a day job. Um, but yeah, for, uh, you know, I did sysadmin for 10 years and uh, I, I would definitely, f a bit stronger in the sysadmin 
than I was programmer. I, I feel like I'm getting better at uh, being a programmer nowadays. Cool. Well, if, if as a sysadmin, I think just reboot the server and you're done. How, how hard is it really to be a sysadmin? Come on. <laughs> when it comes to Linux, the, the entire goal is not to reboot it. Exactly. So. Someday we'll have uh, in-memory kernel available for everyone, uh, the upgrades at least, and uh, then we can mm-hmm. never never uh, reboot them anymore. Um, sure. So. Well, you can do kernel patching in-memory. Yeah. So. True, indeed. I wonder how many people actually do that in production. It seems like such a gimmick. Uh, I'm not sure yeah, how that goes. Probably not too many. No, <laughs> I think you need balls of steel to do it. <laughs> um, going back a bit to Ansible, uh, it, it's your, your current employer. Um, what's your role exactly? What's your day-to-day th- job at Ansible? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I, I started working for Ansible, and uh, I was basically just a programmer. Michael left the company in uh, early 2015, so at that point, I became the lead maintainer for Ansible. So I've been the the running the project since uh, January of 2015 last year. Um, beyond that, once uh, Red Hat bought us, I uh, kind of uh, quit doing the managerial stuff because I was uh, managing the open source team. Now I'm just dedicated to writing programming. I'm essentially like the architect of Ansible. All right. What, what was that like being bought by Red Hat? Did, did that change? Your, your role, well, obviously, it did. It's less of the management side. Uh, was that a good thing for you? Yeah, no, it was, it's been really, really good. Um, Ansible was founded by quite a few ex-Red Hat people, so the, the, kind of, the culture they brought to Ansible was very much inherited from Red Hat. So when Red Hat bought us, the transition was extraordinarily smooth. It's the first time I've gone through, uh, you know, a company I've worked for being purchased by another company, and I, I have nothing to compare it against, but I can only imagine it could not be any smoother than that. How, um, how, how did that really, change things, things practically for you? What that just means um, more budget, more people, m- different ways of working? What was that like? Definitely more people. Um, uh, something we mentioned at Ansible Fest last week. And uh, since Red Hat has bought us, the core team has gone from four people to, I think, 13 or 14 now. Whoa. So that's that's just the open source side of the team. So we definitely got a lot more headcount and a bit, you know, more people to help us work on the project and do things like uh, dedicated people to QA, more documentation people. So, you know, definitely a big bonus there. Um, in terms of the day-to-day project, Red Hat has been very hands-off. They're, they're just very excited to use Ansible um, for a lot internally and to, uh, you know, um, just use us, like I said, more, more and more everywhere. Uh, the only thing they want is for us to have kind of a longer supported version of Ansible. Obviously, that's, that's their business model with the enterprise Linux is, is a longer support cycle. Whereas before, as an open source project, it was pretty much we supported the current version, and that was about it. Okay. Um, well, uh, Red Hat didn't buy you for nothing, obviously. Um, could you explain what Ansible is and what Ansible does for those of us that don't know it? Sure. Ansible, most people probably know Ansible as a configuration management system um, along the lines of Puppet or Chef or SaltStack. But the way I always describe Ansible is that it is a general purpose automation engine. You can pretty much, if you can do it with a script or anything else, a command line program, you can automate it with Ansible. Um, It's just extraordinarily flexible. Um, It's very easy to write modules and other plugins to add on to the functionality. So if Ansible doesn't do it, you can pretty much extend it to do just about anything you want it to. Okay, and uh, what are people mostly using it for? Uh, You know, obviously, like I said, configuration management, but when you have those systems configured, the next step is deploying software on them. That's where, you know, for a long time, a lot of other configuration management systems fell down because it's, it's really kind of difficult to, with some of those other systems, to orchestrate complex tasks across, uh, you know, uh, multiple servers. They were all very, very much focused on configuring one system only. Um, so the, the common example I always give with Ansible, it's uh, very trivial to do this with Ansible, is to say you have typical web application. You've got a load balancer, some web servers, a database behind them. With Ansible, you can say five at a time, take the servers out of the load balancer, upgrade them, restart things, reboot them if you need to, reinsert them into the load balancer, and then move on to the next five. 
all the while saying if any more than, you know, 10% or 20%, whatever you set your threshold to, if that threshold number of servers fails this process, stop, and then you can start rolling things back to bring things back to the state they were in before you started the entire deployment. You can do all of that with the, you know, Ansible out of the box. You don't have to add on to it at all. Doing that with other systems is uh, very, very complex. Um, Ansible, it's no problem. It sounds very impressive. Uh, to be honest, I come from the other systems, a Puppet user myself. Um, mm -hmm. The scenario that you just described, I'm, I'm thinking in my head what that would mean in my, my Puppet code base, my modules. Um, and well, orchestration, like you mentioned, it is, I think, one of the hardest things to get right, especially the if it's uh, on track, keep going. If it's failing, roll back. Very hard topic yeah. to nail. And I think Ansible, uh, well, the, the way you describe it, you've got that covered. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, it was kind of designed from the ground up to do that. Um, others were, like I said, designed to drop a config and ensure a system was set up one way not so much really interact with other systems outside of themselves so yeah exactly okay um could you give a high level introduction to ansible the, the terminology used what are roles the inventory sure sure so with ansible um the main kind of uh structure of what you run is called a playbook it's a yaml document um things are uh listed in order in the YAML, they're basically just lists of tasks, and Ansible executes things in those playbooks at, in the order they're listed. So there's not kind of an eventual convergence uh, scenario that you have with some of the other configuration management systems. Things are executed more like a script. Uh, some people don't like that. Some swear by it. Obviously, we think it's the best way to do it because then you don't have all. You don't have to define your dependencies ahead of time and if you forget something you have to rerun it over and over again i used puppet for five years in production so i'm very very familiar with having to deal with puppet in production um i used cf engine for two years before that so i don't know how many people have actually used cf engine but yeah compared to uh that it's it's very very easy to use um, the YAML syntax is very, very straightforward. Um, it's very, very easy to learn. I, I see just constant stream of tweets um, about, you know, hey, I've been using Ansible for three hours and I'm already being productive with it. Um, just it's super easy to pick up and learn. That's indeed what I'm, what I'm taking away from all of this. Uh, yeah. Given your Puppet experience, uh, well, Puppet is very dependent on, on well, it's, it's, it's a graph that you create. You set up dependencies between services. Um, it quickly becomes enormously complex. Um, Ansible sounds a lot easier. Um, I, I don't mean to put this in the wrong way. Is it because it's more basic, more, more practical? Um, I'm not sure how to, how, how, to, you know, how to define what I'm trying to say here. Puppet, puppet ensures us something of a higher level abstraction. So it's, uh, if you want to install a package, you just declare a package. Puppet will figure out if it's yum, apt, or something else. How would that go in Ansible? Sure. Um, we resisted adding that functionality for a long time, even though Ansible does it now. Um, each task is still declarative. Um, when you list it, you still say package name equals you know HTTPD um, state equals present. So you still declare things in a in the state you want them to be in for each task. The difference is Ansible doesn't compile all of those tasks into a state like Puppet does, and then just tell the machine to figure out how to get into that state. Ansible, like I said, is more script-like. It says one task at a time make sure that things are in the state you say them. Um, some people, I think that's a misconception about being simple is that you're not powerful, but that's definitely not the case with Ansible. Um, uh, with Ansible, we have over, I think we're coming up on 600 modules that we include um, with the uh, distribution. So you can do everything from that very simple file package service configuration management all the way up to spinning up entire environments in EC2 or just about any one of the major cloud environments. Um, very, very complex things are done with Ansible every day. Uh, it's definitely not, it's not underpowered while being simplistic, definitely.
Okay. Um, you, you've mentioned Ansible being good at uh, conflict management and deployment. The way that you describe it now, it's it's um, reaching into the, the Terraform area of um, managing your VMs, deploying your VMs. That That is that's an, an actual use case of Ansible too. Yeah, sure. With Ansible, we have modules that let you do, um, we have cloud formation modules. We don't actually have a Terraform module yet, which surprises me, but uh, you could easily use Terraform from Ansible, uh, just execute it via a, a shell command. Um, but yeah, we have fine-grained modules for just about every EC2 service. So basically you could use Ansible to do exactly what Terraform does if you want very fine-grained control of your EC2 environments. Okay, yeah, you mentioned earlier um, that um, the Ansible project was um, hesitant on, on introducing the, uh, the abstraction layer, say, on top of a package. What made you doubtful of this approach? Creating the abstraction is easy. The hard part is the fact that every uh, distribution has different names for those packages or the, the service names. Um, so creating like the abstract package is easy. The hard part is like managing what those names will be across all of your packages or all of your distributions on, you know, Red Hat distributions. Apache is the HTTPD package. But on Debian and Ubuntu, it's the Apache 2 package. They have different users, different groups, uh, different directories they install to. Um, so it's generally, it's somewhat easy to create that abstraction around it. But at the same time, there's a lot. Once you get past that first layer of just saying, you know, not having to worry about what the underlying package management system is, there's a whole lot more you have to worry about. So it doesn't really save you a lot to create that first layer of, of, of excuse me, of an abstraction. Oh, I agree. Uh, the Ubuntu has its strengths. Red Hat has its strengths. It's best to play into them instead of making a generic Linux layer on top of it. Right. So getting back to your question uh, about roles, roles are essentially uh, chunks of playbooks that are designed to be more reusable than just uh, a, a, a monolithic playbook that you write. So you could create a, you know, a web server role that handles installing Apache or Nginx or whatever web server you prefer across all of these different distributions uh, totally transparently to the playbook that you're running. You just include this web server role and you write your role to worry about all the details under the hood. Okay, so it's a lot easier to say, uh, as, as a non-techie perhaps, hey, I want a web server, it doesn't really matter how that web server looks, I just want a working web server, and the, the role right. bundles the different playbooks together. Right, and then we created what we call Ansible Galaxy, which is galaxy.ansible.com, where people can upload their roles for other people to download and use, so it's, it's kind of the community sharing aspect of roles. Cool. How do playbooks tie in? What, what's inside of a playbook? Uh, so a playbook, uh, basically you just list which hosts you're going to operate on, some other options, and then it's your list of tasks or your list of roles that you're going to use for that playbook. Um, inside a playbook, we have what we call plays. So a playbook can be made up of multiple plays. Sometimes when you're automating something, you want a play to work on, say, your web server group of hosts, and then your next play will do something with your database group of hosts. So you might have multiple plays within your playbook. That's just the terminology we came up with. Um, but yeah, basically each play, you list your which host you're going to operate on, um, and then your list of tasks essentially is about it. Okay, sounds easy enough to get started with. Um, yep. what, what does Ansible code look like? You mentioned YAML. Is that everything there's to it? Uh, yeah, all of pretty much the user interaction with, uh, with Ansible is almost entirely through YAML. Uh, if you want to write modules to extend the functionality of Ansible, you can write modules in any language. Um, they basically just have to follow a, a set of rules. They basically have to take a, uh, a, uh, their list of arguments via JSON, and then they have to spit out JSON on standard out that Ansible reads in to parse out the results. Uh, all the modules we ship with Ansible are all written in Python. Uh, Ansible itself is totally written in Python. Okay, so in, for uh, interoperability, um, probably best to keep everything in Python since that's installed by default. But if I wanted to have a Go binary, that's possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's actually something we just added was the ability to actually have uh, binary modules. Um, so if you had like a compiled Go binary or you know any anything that's a, not a, a scripted language, it would actually work now. With I believe that's going to be in two dot two. I don't that's know cool. if we I forget if we put that in two dot one or not. Well, two dot one, uh, if I recall correctly, was released very very recently. Um, could you tell us what's 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 different in the newest release? Sure. Uh, so with Ansible 2.0, for those who aren't familiar, we basically did a, a major rewrite of some of the uh, two out of what I call the three major components of Ansible had a major refactoring. Um, basically, that was because with Ansible, we had gotten so popular, grown so fast, over 2,200 uh, 2, uh, contributors at this point. There was a lot of people adding code to the database and it at times didn't get added in very sane ways, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, at times decisions that seemed good were ended up not being very good. And it was starting to get difficult to, to add features to the code without breaking things that seemed very unrelated. So 2.0 was a major refactor. Um, 2.1 was... Uh, in a lot of ways, a lot uh, fixing some of the problems that were introduced with 2.0, some of the regressions. Um, some people had problems with uh, moving from 1.9 to 2.0, so 2.1 tried to address all of those problems. Uh, at the same time, 2.1 added a lot of features like uh, better Windows support, better Docker modules, um, a ton of features, really. Really cool. So the, the the big rewrite was that inspired by Red Hat taking over Ansible, or was that something long planned? Yeah, that that was long planned. We actually started the rewrite in uh, November of 2014, and then continued through after Michael left. Um, uh, I think it was about June of 2015 that we started getting. Uh, I think that was uh, when I I did the release candidate for 2.0. The first release candidate was June, and then we ended up releasing it in uh, November, I believe. So it was a very, very long development cycle um, because it was such a major rewrite. Uh, it was uh, just a total, uh, some chunks of code were rewritten from scratch to uh, try and make things more extensible, better, you know, better architecture. It's amazing sometimes what you can learn um, from a 1.0 version and really make it in that into a 2.0. Uh, especially yeah. with if if you mentioned two thousand or more contributors, that has to be a lot of code to uh, to keep into account. Yeah, it, Ansible core itself is not that unwieldy. I believe it's around thirty thousand lines of Python code. Um, the the bulk of the code itself lives in modules. Uh, two thirds of the code base is the module code. Modules so, were were things like um, configuring an Apache web server or managing Git or. Yeah, so yeah, modules are what I always say are the heavy lifters of Ansible. The modules do all the work. So you've got the file, copy, template modules, all the way up to, like I said, modules like the EC2 module, which will start up a given number of instances in EC2. Um, so pretty much if you want to extend the uh, functionality of Ansible, you do it via modules. Okay, cool. Say if you were to put on your sales hat, uh, not sure if you any, uh, do that anytime. Um, I'm a Puppet user. What would you say to me um, to persuade me to drop Puppet and go for Ansible? Uh, so you don't have to buy Ansible. You try it out. It's open source. <laughs> so that's my first uh, my first uh, thing I would say. Second is uh, one of, obviously, those who are familiar with Ansible, those may not. Uh, the number one feature of Ansible is that it's agentless. We do everything over SSH. You don't have to install anything on the servers you're managing. Uh, that in itself is a huge benefit over Puppet because one of the difficulties you run into with Puppet is scaling the Puppet master server once you get up to, you know, say more than 50 servers. I don't know kind of what that threshold is now. Uh, I know when we had 100 servers, we basically had to run you know, pat puppet via passenger and uh, start scaling it up. We had basically four puppet master threads to handle a hundred servers. So, you know, imagine scaling that up to a thousand servers. It's been four years since I've used puppet. Maybe they've made that better, but you'd probably know better. Um, 
well, they've made it better, uh, especially in Puppet 4, but uh, whilst we also have a Puppet 3 code base, and that is passenger all the way. Um, so yeah, the, the agentless um, getting started with just SSH sounds very appealing. That's cool. Yeah, because especially when you're doing cloud deployments, it, it you know having to uh, or Docker deployments, you don't want to have an agent running and having to deal with the key management. Uh, you know all the aspects that come along with having that agent running on that system. Um, it's just something else you have to uh, take care of. Whereas most people run, uh, you know, SSH already on all their servers and have to a lot of times touch those servers. So they have SSH keys set up, which makes it, you know, very, very simple to get started with Ansible. Okay, so uh, your unique selling points for Ansible are mainly, uh, it's, it's agentless, so it's very easy to get started with. Um, open source, obviously, so it's just really free to get started with. Is there a, a unique strength in which Ansible is more, um, more uniquely qualified than the others? Uh, basically, it's it's simplicity. Um, obviously, uh, Puppet is not the easiest thing to pick up. Uh, Chef, a lot of times you you uh, to really you don't have to know Ruby to write it, but it uh, to use Chef, but it, it really helps, especially if you're trying to do anything more powerful with it. Um, so Ansible is simple. You write YAML playbooks, and you can do some very very complex things. So. That's kind of our, our sales pitch is, you know, simple, agentless, powerful. Okay, nice sales hat. <laughs> it works. Um, getting back to the practical, technical bits, um, how do you literally get started with Ansible? Uh, how do you bootstrap a new server? And what are your first steps that you should do in, uh, in order to get started with Ansible? Yeah, so you can install Ansible uh, a lot of different ways. You can... Um, you know, we package it for just about every major distribution. So you should be able to install it that way. Or if you want to, you could install it via PIP. Um, Ansible is on PyPy, so you can install it on PIP. You can even do it in a virtual EMV if you wanted to try it out. Uh, as a developer, the way I install it is by checking out the uh, Git source tree from GitHub. And I we uh, have a script that uh, we ship with it, and it's in a subdirectory called Hacking. Uh, you just source this script called hacking uh, env-setup, and it modifies your Python path uh, in your active shell. It doesn't do anything permanently. It's just in your running session, tweaks your Python path to use the directory, the uh, source code directory, and you can start running Ansible right away. So all you have to do is have SSH available, and that's your bootstrap step. If you want to, If you don't have SSH keys, I highly recommend it. Uh, you don't have to, but otherwise you have to, every time you run Ansible, type in the password for the servers you're managing, which is can be a bit of a pain if you're managing 100 servers. Exactly. So definitely recommend having SSH keys, which most sysadmins have. Indeed. Every place I ever worked, I had SSH keys set up for servers. So basically the first step is a first Ansible run. Say that I want to launch it from my laptop. Um, I connect to a newly installed server. So either my SSH key is already on there by the template or whichever service the, the cloud provider provides. Or I enter a password for the first time and then Ansible can take over and install my SSH keys. Yep. Okay. Yep, pretty much. Um, and then just to make sure we have two ways of running Ansible, we actually have an ad hoc, what we call ad hoc mode, um, that basically acts like a parallel SSH client. Um, but the difference is you can run, uh, you run modules via that ad hoc mode instead of just, uh, you know, shell commands, um, which one of the modules we have is the shell command module. So very simply, you could just uh, do Ansible and then, you know, the host you want to talk to and whatever module you want to run, the arguments you want to pass to it. And, you know, very simply, if you just want to make sure you have connectivity, you just use the ping module and it'll tell you that Ansible is connected to it and it's working. Okay. That's uh, that's one of the ways that you can run. So there's there's an, there's a push and a pull way, I think, of uh, putting it to run Ansible. Um, could sure. you describe both, and when would you use one over the other? Sure. So Ansible is very much designed to be a push model. Uh, it's one of the big differences, again, between that and just about every other um, system out there. The uh, Ansible does everything from kind of a centralized host to push things out. Um, some people think there's scalability issues with that, but I know of people managing 10,000 servers in a, in a group with that push model. So I, if 
if you're dealing with that kind of scale, not many people are, you shouldn't have rooms. Um, the main parameter there is like the, uh, the number of forks you use, which is kind of your level of parallel actions that you do. So you could say, you know, 500 forks across 10,000 servers. So you're basically touching 500 servers at a time. Um, just depends on the uh, how much memory and CPU you have on the system you're running Ansible from. Okay. Ansible pull mode was designed to give an option for those people that liked the puppet model that didn't want to have to always do pushes to their servers in order to do some basic, you know, uh, make sure their configs didn't drift, things like that. So Ansible pull mode works by um, you typically set it up via cron. Uh, you just uh, just say, you know, Ansible pull and point it at a source code repository. I think we support SVN and uh, Git at the very least. Um, so it goes, checks out the playbook from the uh, that source code repository and then runs it on the system. However often you set it up to via cron or at or whatever system you want to use. Ah, so that's nice. The, the, your entire code base does not have to be on each server. It just fetches them each run, deletes the the source code and ensures the state is okay yep okay nice um you mentioned it's mainly meant to be a push uh mode so i'm guessing that's what it's most popular for to uh, at the moment how many people are actually running this in pool do you think is that that even a, a common use case today it's i would say it's definitely a minority if I I don't have numbers. I, I don't know if we've asked that on any of our recent community surveys. We periodically do community surveys to ask questions like that. I don't recall if we have recently, but uh, if it was more than 20% of the users, I'd be surprised. Okay, okay. Um, going back to the push model then, um, you uh, you also mentioned that you could uh, use a server for this. What's your best practice? Should you run this from, say, a laptop for each developer? Would you run this from a central server on which you manage access? What's the what's the plan, Mace Monley? It really depends on the security profile of your company. Um, most larger companies have essentially a bastion or jump host. Uh, I would definitely recommend running it from there. Uh, with Ansible, it's SSH. You can set up tunnels, um, so you can tunnel through a Bastion host if you wanted to continue running it from your desktop or laptop. Uh, so it just depends on how people want to use it. Um, with cloud environments, I typically recommend that people set up a server in the cloud environment to manage that environment from. Uh, otherwise, you're doing SSH over the internet, and your latency and timeouts can you know, very wildly. So just for a smoother ride, do it from within your cloud environment. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, it's easier to manage indeed uh, or to enforce permissions on a central server than it is to try to get every developer or every sysadmin's laptop under control. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's You typically have shared accounts or kind of a, a sysadmin general account that you do everything from that has all the pseudo permissions, stuff like that anyway. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, one of the challenges that I, I have in a Puppet in this case, but I'm sure Chef and, and the others have it as well. How do you enforce um, different environments like a development or a staging or a production? Um, how do you enforce versions to be the same across them all? Uh, the good thing about Ansible is your playbook is detached from your inventory. So you should be able to have the exact same playbook you know, you try it out in your development environment with your development inventory. You then take that exact same playbook, apply it to your QA inventory source, and then you up all the way up to prod or however many environments you have. Uh, so the tasks you run are decoupled from the inventory, and you can change how the playbook functions by essentially having uh, variables on your inventory sources. So your inventory, we call them host vars and group vars. Um, so you can have you have hosts and inventory. They can be in one or you know up to however many groups you want to have, and all hosts and groups can have variables assigned to them in the inventory. So you, you pretty much kind of override some things based on those variables. So it allows you to have the same core playbook uh, very easily transfer across your environments. 
because so the environment the parameters that you can set per host or per group would be the environments and how do you determine logic then um say you want a development environment to have say small slightly different uh, setup than a production environment maybe in terms of firewalling how would you go about separating those uh, again you could have uh uh, variable files that you want. You could uh, include extra variables uh, as you're running it. It's kind of a, a runtime set of variables. Um, so you can uh, change, the again, the profile of what the playbook or whatever roles you're running is doing. You know, say, okay, in development, I want a simple cluster. It's basically, you know, an all-in-one cluster. But as I go up to QA, I actually want this cluster, you know, say you're deploying OpenStack, which, you know, the, uh, the OpenStack team uses Ansible almost exclusively to do all of their infrastructure stuff. So, you know, in dev, you might deploy your all-in-one OpenStack cluster on one system, but then QA, you, you know, you have your Nova servers and your quantum servers are all on different boxes. And you can control all of that with variables on inventory, variables uh, that you pass in at runtime. Um, Sounds very flexible. Ways yeah. You can, yeah. <laughs> um, are, are there best practices around this? Is, is there a recommended way from Ansible to do things? Uh, sort of a, uh, how would you say, a, 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 a linting norm? Uh, a, a, yeah. Sure. There's actually, there's a, an Ansible lint uh, program out there that was written by a third party to kind of run through some of the best practices in the format of your playbooks and uh, other you know files that you may use with Ansible. Um, in terms of the actual structure of the playbooks and roles and things, how you structure that, we're a little bit more freeform on that because some people like doing things one way and others really like doing it the other. Some people love roles, some people hate roles, so they do everything with includes which is uh, a role is basically the same thing as an include, but it gives you a lot more flexibility and is designed to be more reusable by, you know, just random third parties. Um, so the best practices and formatting of the YAML, yes, in terms of the overall structure, there's two or three ways that people do it. And we've held off on telling people any one way to write their playbooks. Okay. Give it the, give the freedom to the users. Uh, yep. Sounds like a good plan. So it also sounds like a, uh, a, a perhaps a difficult um, situation as an implementer. So say I wanted to use Ansible in my environment and I have the plan to to, to do this on thousands of servers. Um, sounds like I really need to think about how I'm going to structure my my code, my my usage, my inventory. Um, it's probably regardless of what tool you're using, it's probably best to think about it either way. Um, but in, in case of like a puppet, there there's a pretty um, they, they don't enforce it, but they recommend a very specific way of working. Um, so Ansible gives you a lot more freedom. Yeah, like I said, it, there's some recommendations, like you said, but there's no hard and fast rule. Like you should set up your playbook this way. You should have all of your roles structured this way. Um, it, it's a little bit more free form than that, but. Okay. Uh, getting back to the practical side, um, how would you order your resources in Ansible? Very practical example, um, say you want to install MySQL and Apache on one server, but uh, MySQL has to be up and running before Apache starts. How would you go about? Yeah, with Ansible, that's trivial because the tasks are executed in the order you want them. So your first task would be to, um, uh, you know, install both packages. You can install both of them might be a little tricky on Ubuntu because Ubuntu likes starting up the services beforehand. Um, so I, I would still just install both packages and then I would restart the MySQL service and then restart the Apache service. Um, before you restart the Apache service, you probably want to deploy your, your web application to it. So that would be the step before you restart Apache. Um, but yeah, pretty, you know, pretty much four, at least four tasks there, just one, two, three, four, and you've got a web server and Apache server. Okay. Sounds like it's a lot more readable, uh, than say something like Puppet where you can have the, the order in which you write things is not necessarily the order in which things get executed. Um, it's the strength and the weakness of Puppet, I think. Um, so in Ansible, mm -hmm. it's really what you see is what you get in a, in a playbook. Yeah, absolutely. There was a funny anecdote I heard from one of our um, uh, 
service uh, people that went out on a, a business call to help some people do things and uh, at a company. And uh, in this meeting, there were salespeople and he brought up a, a playbook and said, hey, you know, showed it to the salesperson said, tell me what this playbook is doing. And the salesperson was able to say, oh, well, it's doing this, this and this because uh, it, like it's very, very readable. The, the task is just, you know, what module you're going to use and then what what parameters to that module you're going to do. So you see, you know, a shell module being used and then a command line argument afterwards. And you say, oh, this is just running the shell command right here. Or, oh, it's just starting up these EC2 instances. You know, it's it's very, very, very easy to read. Okay. Um, I don't know any Python. Um, I'm a PHP guy myself. So without any Python um, knowledge, is it easy to get started with Ansible? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, YAML is one of those. Uh, it's it's a document language, so it's uh, kind of crosses. It's gotten popular enough that it's crossed outside of just being a Python kind of uh, structured document. Uh, a lot of people use it in many languages. So that's probably the biggest barrier to getting up and running with Ansible is if you don't know YAML, learning YAML so that you can properly structure the document. Okay, that's the good thing um, because YAML really isn't that hard to get ma to master. Um, it's really not that yeah. bad. Yeah, I agree. It's, agree. it's certainly not XML or anything like that. <laughs> Indeed, even JSON, if you have to write it by uh, by hand, is not the most fun uh, format to document things in. Um, if we could uh, jump into testing uh, Ansible code, how would you go about doing that? You have an Ansible playbook. How do you make sure it does what you tell it to do? Sure. So uh, Ansible has uh, a dry run mode that we call check mode. Um, so you can run it in check mode and it will tell you, oh, this module would have changed this. This module would have changed that. This module didn't change anything. Um, so you can dry run your playbooks that way to see what it would have uh, changed or not. And then just just like Puppet, it's each module action should really design be designed around um, being identified. So you run your playbook. If it something failed, you can go out and maybe fix it, run another playbook to fix that, and then rerun the original playbook, and uh, you're up and running. So, When you say that there's a dry run, uh, that, that is actually run against a particular server? It's run exactly as it would be if you were running the playbook um, live. Cool. It, it, does, uh, it actually goes out, talks to those servers, um, gathers the information, and uh, does everything right up to that step inside the module that it would have actually changed something, but instead just returns the you know the result that it would have changed. Cool. Well, Puppet does something similar. Uh, in in uh, there are downsides and uh, negatives to that. And um, for instance, if you well, if you uh, part of your uh, your dry run or your no up run would add a user, and you want to use that user in a later stage. Um, doesn't always work uh, as you planned. Is, is there um, something in Ansible where you mock or you fake those resources that should have been created? Not really. For uh, the option we have there is uh, something we call always run. It's an option you can set on a task that uh, even if you're running check mode, the uh, if it's set as always run yes, then even in check mode, it will actually execute that module. So if there's something you need to do to like say gather information, run a command to get some output that you're going to parse at a later step, um, you can do that with uh, the always run yes in check mode so that your tasks won't fail. That's a good workaround. I can also see myself shooting myself in the foot with that uh, with that option. Uh, but you hey. have to be careful because <laughs> yeah, you could change something even when you've told it that I'm in you know dry run mode, you know check mode is what we call yeah. it. Indeed. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, at, at the very beginning of our talk, you mentioned um, Ansible does not only do config management, it also does the deployment aspect. Um, let's let's take a typical PHP or Ruby or Node application as an example. How would you deploy a Node application to a server with Ansible? Uh, so we, uh, we have package manager for NPM, so you could... Uh install the things uh, that way, um, whatever dependencies there are. Um, so after that, you typically have your code in a source code repository. Uh, so Ansible has support for, you know, uh, obviously Git, um, Mercurial, uh, pretty much any of the major source code management. You know, we even have a CVS module. 
So you check out your source code, um, and then you can use other module actions to copy it into place. Or if you're doing something like the, uh, um, uh, I forget the name of it, um, but say you basically copy everything to a directory, and then you uh, like change a sim link yeah. to point at the most recent version. Uh, th that's all very easy to do with Ansible. Um, we have modules that create sim links. You copy things around. Um, it's the the so Capistrano way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. It just depends on pretty much a lot of you. However, you would deploy it today, it's pretty much very easy to take that to the Ansible approach. Um, except doing it with modules so that you kind of have this more full-featured error handling, things like that. You know, you don't have to write shell scripts that you have to write all these, you know, if, else, if, conditionals, like, oh, you know, my RC for my Git checkout failed and all this stuff. That's all handled via the module code in Ansible. So it really shrinks what you would have been doing into shell script into just a few tasks in Ansible. Well, I uh, recently, and I mean yesterday, <laughs> read a, a blog post, I think, from uh, the Red Hat team um, about how to deploy such an application with Ansible. It was very, very, uh, mo mostly readable. Um, it, if, if I remember my Capistrano days, um, it's a bit of a hell to structure things and it's, it's a bit all over the place. Um, Ansible sounds like a really good alternative for such a deployment proce process. Yeah, and like I said, the uh, deploying something on one server is easy. It's when you've got complex actions between many servers, um, you know, tiers of architectures when things get com complex. Um, I always say, in terms of config management, any one of us will get you what you want, whether you're using Puppet or CF Engine or Salt or Chef or Ansible, it's doing the basic file package service stuff is really the easy thing to do. It's when you're trying to do very complex things that Ansible really uh, outshines all the others. So what I'm mostly uh, taking away from our conversation here is that even if you have an existing uh, config management solution X, you can still um, supplement it with Ansible for say the deployment and the orchestration of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people actually use um, Ansible to manage their Puppet deployments. Uh, it's a very common use case to the point where somebody actually created a Puppet module so that you can trigger Puppet runs remotely with Ansible uh, via, you know, very similar to the way you would do with um, uh, uh, M Collective. Uh, you know, I, I, I've used, I used Puppet for many, many years, and in all the term, time I've been doing Ansible, I have yet to hear somebody who's using M Collective in any major way. Uh, it's just not a very easy system to pick up. Uh, have, you, have you used M Collective much yourself? We're actually in the process of implementing and rolling it out to, uh, to our system, but I, I agree with the current sentiment. It's, um, it's very powerful, complicated, and uh, a bit of a hassle to set up, to secure, to, to get to a stage where you can set privileges, who can run what and who should be limited to what. Um, right. Yeah, it, it gets tricky and Ansible sounds like a, an easier solution to get something similar out of the box. Yeah, so a lot of people use it that way because it's it's very similar. I, I tried M Collective in the past, never liked it. I always ended up using parallel SSH or SSH in you know, loops to do my deployments. I always worked for, you know, financial institutions or other places where we didn't actually have Puppet D running in our environments because we didn't want things changing in the middle of the day. We had very strict change control windows that we were allowed to do, uh, you know, things in. Um, so, you know, we, we always triggered our runs and uh, I wish I'd had Ansible then to do it. I can imagine an SSH for loop can get you a far, get, get you pretty far, but error handling rollbacks going forwards mm -hmm. uh, that's that's uh, something if it's handled by a higher level framework it's uh, definitely a win. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I think I have a pretty good understanding of the uh, the powers and strengths of Ansible. Um, are there um, absolute um, real killer features of Ansible that you'd like to plug that I forgot to uh, to mention here? Uh, I don't think so. You know, obviously the, the killer feature of Ansible is always the agentless, the, the fact that you don't have to have anything running on the remote server. But um, yeah, that's you pretty much covered it, I think. Okay. 
as a as a closing topic um i'd like to ask my guests if uh, if they can recommend an open source project obviously in this case not ansible um any open source project that you find interesting today what would it be uh you know i still i really love openstack i, I love the promise of it um it bums me out that i hear that it's you know so many people have trouble with it i, I think it's just a an awesome idea to have your to have something so powerful like be able to run your own cloud of systems uh it's so many previous companies i'd wish i'd had the ability to just spin up a server to hand off to a developer or somebody else so much easier than doing it through something like vmware or anything else so that i still really love openstack um so i hope it i hope it they uh gets a bit easier to use for people i uh the, I, i read horror stories about openstack i think it's uh whether it's it's rightfully so or uh, or not uh, it gets ridiculed a bit for its complexity um mm-hmm. i have a future episode planned with open on, on openstack so i uh, i'm curious to see how complex it really is but as you mentioned it's an extremely powerful tool um but it's a tool you need to master it so uh yeah <laughs> yeah okay good tip i think um if listeners would like to uh, reach out to you or ask for help where can they find you Uh, the best ways are probably uh, via Twitter. Um, so uh, the at the Jimmy C, T H E J I M I C on GitHub. Uh, the other best way, if you uh, want to talk to me right now, is uh, we have a couple chat channels on IRC Freenode. Uh, we have a uh, hashtag Ansible and uh, hashtag Ansible dash Devel. Uh, so if you have an issue or you're have you know you're looking at the code and you want to uh, you know get involved with writing uh you know working on ansible definitely uh catch me that way okay nice i'll uh, include all of your links in the show notes so if anyone's interested in uh, reaching james um look at the show notes click on a few links and it should be really easy to find um just as a closing note i'd like to give a, a special thanks to uh, serge van Ginderachter. i'm not sure if you know him james uh, but he helped me prepare some of the questions here um because ansible to me is a uh, a bit of a, a new territory so uh, and sergio was my veteran go-to man uh thanks sergio for helping me out here um yep i've i've known serge for a long time he's been uh, very active in the open source community for ansible for many many years yeah indeed he's uh, every time i say something good about puppet he comes in and say ansible is uh, nice as well <laughs> <laughs> he's a uh how do you uh, call him uh, an evangelist of ansible i think he's one of the best <laughs> um boards you can have to uh, to pronounce the project <laughs> um yep. for the listeners uh, if you listen to the show and you liked it i would really appreciate it if you could share it on either social media or give a rating in itunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, it helps me get more exposure and uh, helps grow the show so thanks uh, take care james and for the listeners i uh, i will see you next time bye bye thank you thank you